uh, are in, as Tom said, 1 John chapter 3 in the next section of that chapter, which will be verses 4 through 10. Verses 4 through 10, my title for you this morning is simply, Christian, practice what you preach. Christian, practice what you preach. Christianity is a faith that is rooted in the truth. The truth of God as it is revealed by God in his word. And as such, it's a faith that highly values integrity. The belief that a person should believe what they say and say what they believe. And what's more, that that person should live up to what they say they believe. In other words, we should have a faith, you and I, as Christians, that is free of hypocrisy, that does not find its complacency or comfort in a neutral ground. In other words, Christians, we should practice what we preach. And we are either for him or we are against him. I'd like to discuss this with you this morning by way of 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, and two simple points, the reality of sin, and secondly, the reality of sanctification. The reality of sin and the reality of sanctification. Let's begin with our first point this morning, the reality of sin. John begins this section, again, verses 4 through 10, with a continuation of the previous topic that he introduced in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Namely, that as Christians and as the children of God, we should bear our Father's resemblance. Say amen. Last week we learned that we are the children of God and that the children of God should bear their father's resemblance. And what is the father's resemblance? Well, we learned last week that it is perfection and holiness. Think about it. It would be immoral and unethical for God to demand or expect anything from his people other than that standard which he himself embodies, which is holiness and perfection. So 1 John chapter 3, verse 3 says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, continuing from verses 1 through 3 into chapter 3, verses 4 through 10, we see immediately a few things that develop this topic further still. Let's reread that section, if you would. Beginning in verse 4, you can read with your eyes as I read aloud. Everyone... How many? Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him, there's how much sin? None. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, and the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. 
for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident that we are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother, by the way. That's sort of like a caveat there. We're going to get into more of that in chapter 4. But suffice it to say for this morning that John is pitting two groups of people against each other. You've got those who are of the seed of God, regenerate, born again, and those who are not. They are working for the devil, and they are in God's family. They are in God's family, but they are working for the devil. A couple of things that I want you to note, a couple of things that I think are worth noting. First, I'd like you to note the variety of words. Nice. You okay, bud? Huh? Okay. Everybody, say hi to Elijah. Huh? He won't sleep tonight. Yeah. <clears throat> no, just kidding. So, getting back to what I was saying, first, I want you to note the variety of words that John chooses to use to convey his meaning in this section. Variety, church, has purpose. And I believe that John is using, in this case, a variety of words because he doesn't want to leave any wiggle room for those who might debate or argue with him over this issue. If you look at the text again with your eyes as I look at it with you, John uses two words to deal with what we call sin. The first one is translated as simply as that, sin. But the second word is lawlessness. Now, there's a reason for this. Again, there's a reason for the variety. Sin is the common word for sin that we see on a regular basis in the New Testament. It is a word that is used by the apostles in the New Testament to describe someone who crosses a line or falls short of a standard. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul says. That's the word that's used there, sin. But then he also uses the word lawlessness. Now, the word lawlessness is the word law with the letter alpha or A in the beginning of it. So nomos or nomia is law. Anomia means no law. So lawlessness here that John is trying to get us to understand is simply this. It's a word that represents contempt and disregard for God's law. People who sin all the time have no regard for God's law. It's lawlessness, John says. And we've already concluded that John's view of sin is serious. He believes that we are all sinners. How many of us? All of us. But he also believes that those who are in Christ are sinners. But saints, or Maybe we might say it like this. We are saints and still sinners. We are sinners, but we are saints. In the first point, I don't think John will allow wiggle room. I, I think he's choosing a variety of words here to convey how important this point is. If he only chose one word, somebody in a certain sect or faction within the church might say, well, you didn't really cover this part. 
John is not allowing them to have that. He's covering the gamut. He's saying that sin is still in the world around us and affecting us, even if we are saints in the body of Christ, and even if we are in the family of God, even, that is to say, if we are Christians. We have to deal with sin outside of us, and we have to deal with sin inside of us. We have to contend with this each and every day. Some of you don't need me to remind you of this. That's the first thing I want you to know. The second thing I want you to note is this. The present tense of the verbs to abide and to sin. I want you to note the present tense of the verbs to abide and to sin in verse 6. If you look at it with your eyes, say amen when you see it. It says this, no one, here it is, abides in him and keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now, Colin Cruz, one commentator on this text, says this, the author, who is John, uses the present tense forms of the verbs to remain or to abide and to sin, get this, indicating that both the abiding and the sinning in this statement are being viewed as continuous acts. Did you get that? The abiding and the sinning are being viewed as continuous acts. This is an important distinction that has to be appreciated. John already said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. This is in chapter 1, verse 8. So John knows that we're sinners and that we're imperfect. So we know that John is not arguing that point. He's not saying that we are perfect people. I'll tell you that. That way you know. We're not perfect people. We read this verse. It might be a little misleading. But the original form of the verbs help us understand what John isn't saying as well as what he is. John is, what John is saying, excuse me, unfolds over the course of the next few verses, and if I rattle them off for you here, you can see them. They might be on the screen. Are they up there, Eli? What's the next one, bud? Yes. <laughs> now he's terrified. Now he's trigger shy. <laughs> now, now, he's, now he's trigger shy. <sighs> Look at this progression of thought. Verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning, verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning, verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning, verse 9, no one who is born of God makes a practice of sinning. Come on, church, I know you can see what I'm telling you already. At the end of verse 10, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. You see what John is saying here? John is not saying that you're perfect. I will relieve you of that great anxiety and burden. John is saying that we are in fact not perfect, but John is saying that those who are in the family of God, those who have the seed of God, the Holy Spirit living within them, they ought to be living a life that is different from those who aren't the family of God, who do not have the Spirit of God living within them. John says in verse 6, no one who abides in him, here it is, keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning, I love this, has either seen him or known him. 
has either seen him or known him. John mentions seeing him and knowing him. I believe there's a distinction here. He's seeing him and knowing him. Of course, the seeing part, I think, is a reference to the fact that John has been insisting throughout his letter that Jesus was real, a real historical figure who really lived and who really performed miracles and who really died and who was really raised by God on the third day. Jesus wasn't a figment of their imagination or some mythological figure cooked up by them in the basement in Israel. Jesus was a real man who was really seen by these real apostles. But not everyone saw Jesus with their eyes. So interestingly enough, it's almost as if John is saying that you can know him powerfully and intimately, even if you haven't seen him. Isn't that a blessing, church? He says, verse 6, if you keep on sinning, you have neither seen him or known him. I'm grateful that we can know him, though we may not be able to see him. Now, I want to turn a corner here and discuss our second point, which is the reality of sanctification. We talked about the reality of sin. Now let's move forward to the reality of sanctification. Sanctification is a word that has as its root holiness. Holiness, cleanness, or purity. That's the root of the word sanctification. Sometimes you'll see in the New Testament the word saint. Sometimes you'll see the word sanctification. Sometimes you'll see the word purity or purify. The root of those words are all the same. It has a twofold understanding, sanctification does. First, every Christian is sanctified by God once and for all. That means you are made holy and removed from the world once and for all. But there's another aspect to sanctification. That would be the second aspect. The second aspect of sanctification isn't the once and for all aspect that God does in us when we become Christians. The second aspect is the work that God does in us and on us and through us and around us in which we cooperate progressively from the time we become Christians to the time we go to glory. So sanctification has how many aspects? Two aspects. The first is when we become a Christian, we are removed from the world in God's eyes and we are no longer seen as foreigners and aliens to the covenant. From that point forward, we are in the family of God. Amen? Amen. Never to be removed. He is eternally our father. That is a biblical theological fact. But the resemblance part takes some growth. Since we're adopted into the family of God, we are not sons from eternity past to eternity future, like Jesus is the son from eternity past to eternity future. We have to learn what it means to be pure. We have to learn what it means to be godly. We have to learn what it means to be righteous. And that's the second part. That's the progressive part. Regarding this issue, John Stott writes, sanctification is gradual and throughout our life. Yeah, 
I'm glad three of you agree to that. That's a lot to swallow, isn't it? G. Campbell Morgan, who was the pastor of the famous Westminster Chapel in the 1930s and 40s, wrote this, right conduct can only issue from right character and therefore is not possible to man whose whole nature is poisoned and paralyzed by sin. You see, the reason we care about God's will, the reason we care about righteousness, the reason we feel bad when we're guilty is because God's Spirit is speaking to us, convicting us, and encouraging us towards godliness and Christ-likeness. Church, that is progressive sanctification. If you don't care about that, you're not in the family of God. To be in the family of God means to care about your Father's will and your Father's likeness in your life. That's what we're talking about. Christians have been sanctified once and for all, and yet are moving away from ungodliness and lawlessness and sinfulness progressively, gradually. You may not be perfect today, but my question for you is, are you any different today than you were five years ago? You may not be perfect today, but are you any different than you were 10 years ago? Or are you stuck And if you're stuck, here's the question, the most important question that you need to ask yourself. Why? Why am I stuck? Am I stuck because I'm apathetic and indifferent to Christ? Or am I stuck because I don't know him? Those are two very different questions, both of which must be answered, however. This process that we're talking about, this process of sanctification, is wildly important And not only is it wildly important, it is, I think, rooted in a bigger idea that John has already mentioned. And that that idea is this, the idea of abiding, abiding. John has now resumed this conversation to abide. Now, as I mentioned a few weeks ago in a message titled, Abide in Him, the Apostle John likes this theological nuance. He likes this idea of abiding in Jesus. You want to go back and listen to it on iTunes or on our website, I would encourage you to do that. But here is essentially a summation of what it means to abide. Abiding, according to the Apostle John, is this. If his word should abide in us, we will abide in Jesus, and consequently, we will abide in the Father. If his word abides in us, then we are abiding in Jesus, and abiding in Jesus means that we're also abiding in the Father. Now, a little farther down in this text, in verse 9, John says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, get this, because God's seed does what? Abides in him. Now, there's a little bit of a discussion as to what John is specifically referring to. Is he referring to the message of the gospel abiding in us? That's not a bad argument. Or is he referring to God the Holy Spirit abiding in us, which also is not a bad argument. Either one of those positions is healthy and sound and evangelical. My personal preference, however, is that he's referring to God the Holy Spirit. I think he's referring to that distinction of a person whose presence in our lives makes us different than anyone and everyone else in the world. We are possessed by God, church. 
if we are the children of God. John is saying, we can't keep on sinning. We don't keep on sinning. We practice righteousness because God the Holy Spirit lives with us. He says, what's the word he likes? Abides. In a single sentence, I think what John is saying here is simple. While there are people who claim to know God, the fact that they live their lives according to their own laws and will, instead of according to God's law and will, indicates that they don't know God. Knowing God leads to godliness in Christ Jesus. Church, that's the hook. Being in the family of God leads to godliness in your life. Here are some principles that I think we should acknowledge in this case. I want to get practical for a minute. They're going to come up here on the screen. And if you give me permission, let me just coach you for a few minutes. This is going to be our application, all right? We might be asking ourselves, okay, sin, serious, still evident with us, but it should not be ruling us if we're in Christ. Got it. Why not? Because we've been sanctified, set apart by God, and God is calling us to work with him as he works on us between now and glory. We should be increasing in our godliness. Got it. How? How do we achieve that? Let's get practical over the next few minutes. First thing I want to impress upon you is this. Be intentional and deliberate. You want to be godly? You should want to be godly. If you're in Christ, if you want to be godly, if you want to see a difference in your life today or tomorrow versus what it was like last year or five years ago, here it is. Be intentional and deliberate. Say amen if you're listening, church. You will not trip and fall into godliness, man. You are not going to Netflix your way to godliness. You are not going to sleep your way to godliness. You're not going to regret your way to godliness either. You're not going to bitterness your way to godliness. You know what I'm saying? If you would ever be godly, then you must be intentional and deliberate. The men and women who are mature Christians in your life, in our church, in this world, they became mature Christians because they decided to use the word yes for God and no for the world. They created a calendar, blocks of time in their week and in their day that was non-negotiable. It was for God. They don't let the television and phone calls and text messages and emails and whatever else draw them away from the focus that God has called them to give to him. He wants us to be intentional and deliberate. You won't grow otherwise because you don't grow by accident. You grow in the direction God is calling you to grow when you decide, not me for you, but you personally for yourself, I'm going to grow in godliness. I'm going to be the man or the woman that God has called me to be. Did you get that? I'm not talking about Instagram. I'm not talking about television. I'm not talking about anything else. I'm not talking about what the world is telling you to be. The world doesn't know the difference between a man and a woman. I'm talking about what God says, man, about what a man is and what a woman is. 
And I'm not talking about postponing that thing till 32. I'm talking about deciding before manhood is upon you that you're going to be a man. And before womanhood is upon you that you're going to be a woman. Anybody can have sex. Sex is not the main ingredient of masculinity and femininity. It's integrity. It's purpose. And where is purpose found? Purpose is found in responsibility. I'm starting to see a slide in some of our culture, I think, among the group that I would say would be young Christians. They have been so free of hardship that they're almost craving it now. The entitlement has made their life so easy. Phones at 12, iPads at 13. Anything and everything that is available to the world is available to them in childhood. And what has happened is we've got 20, 22-year-olds, 25-year-olds who are going, I need more hardship in my life. I need more challenge in my life. Some of you are 45, 55, realizing it now because you've become a Christian late in life and you're realizing that what the world has been selling you is not what God has called you to. God's never promised us easiness. God has called us to a deliberate intentionality when it comes to who we are developing in our character and in our godliness. You want to be a mature Christian? you got to be intentional, and you got to be deliberate. You're not going to trip and fall into this. Here's another thing that I want to tell you while I coach you here for a minute. Practice makes permanent. You better be careful what you do on a regular basis. Some of you are struggling with habits because you've practiced it so much it's become permanent. You don't know how to sit down at a computer without looking at pornography. You don't know how to scroll through something without looking for somebody inappropriate. You don't know how to talk to somebody without being flirtatious. Why is it? Why has it come to that for you? Because you have practiced it so often that now it's permanent. Can it be undone? Yes! Go back to number one. You gotta be intentional and you gotta be deliberate. It's not going to happen accidentally. You want to raise yourself up? You want to go beyond any bar that you've ever achieved in your life so far? God is not telling you, lay down and I'll do it for you. God is saying, I will work with you. But you got to work. We want to lay down and wake up the next day like godly osmosis. Right? We want, we want that person's amazing, strong marriage, but we don't want to work on our marriage. We don't want to forgive our spouse. We want to go a week at a time without talking to them and the next week wake up and have an amazing marriage. That's not how it works. You got to get ugly. You got to get in the dirt. You got to work. This is how things happen successfully. Practice makes permanent. Observe your life. Survey your life. What are you doing on a regular basis that has become permanent? Is it godly or not? Is it contributing to your godliness or not? Truth of the matter is, is so many of us want shortcuts to things that are imposters to God's design. And we take the cheap rather than God's design because it's easier to get the cheap than it is to be disciplined, practice godliness.
whatever you practice will become permanent. Here's another thing I want to tell you. You need to take the heat. Church diamonds are only revealed after heat and pressure. Gold is only purified after heat and pressure. You want to be godly? Take the heat. If you want to be godly, you got to take the heat. Too many people are, are, are setting, settling for less because it's easy. They won't take the heat to achieve more. That's why they're not achieving more because they have time. Life gets hot. The pressure kicks up and it gets difficult. They quit. You want the greater marriage? Take the heat. Withstand the pressure. You want the better career? Finish strong. Get your education. Take the heat. Work through the pressure. You want peaceful nights? Forgive people. Take the heat. Go through the pressure. You will not achieve these things if you don't take the heat. Here's another one, finally. Reject the options. Reject the options. Listen, I'm going to make it simple for you. If you're a Christian, godliness is not an option. You're not waking up tomorrow going, am I going to be godly today or am I going to flirt with that lady at work? You're not going to wake up tomorrow and go, am I going to be godly today or am I going to watch something that's not going to honor God? You're not going to wake up tomorrow and say, am I going to be godly today or am I going to be snarky with my spouse? You don't have an option. If you are in Christ, godliness is your destiny. You know what destiny is. Destiny is a a smaller form of the word destination. We like to make destiny ethereal and sort of abstract, but it's not. What's my destiny? If you're a Christian, your destiny is done. Your destination. What's your destination if you're a Christian? It's glory. It's glory. So between here and there, you know what your destination is, right? Amen? So are you living like you know where you're going? I I bump into these Christians that I just don't know what God's will is for me. Are you serious? What church are you going to? This is not hard to figure out. God's destiny for you is to live with him forever and to reflect that foreverness today. Right now, the godliness and the kingdom lifestyle here, even before glory. If you're in his family, you must resemble the likeness. Reject the other options. You don't have any other options. If you're a Christian, stop acting like you have other options. Let me tell you another thing, and you can tuck this away. What gets celebrated gets repeated. What gets celebrated gets repeated. You better be careful how you react to certain people's behavior because if you're celebrating their behavior, whether it's a positive or a negative celebration, that's what's going to get repeated. Some of you are stuck in cycles because you keep celebrating the cycle. You want to change your family's destiny? Break the cycles. Stop celebrating things you don't want to have repeated. What you celebrate gets repeated. So celebrate your victories. However you want to do that, celebrate your victories. You're fighting temptation, you overcome, celebrate the victory. 
Someone in your family does something great, celebrate the victory. Why would you want to do something like that? Because what you celebrate gets repeated. Seems specific, doesn't it? Go back to the first point. Be intentional and deliberate. It's important to note the absolute division that's made when our mentality becomes behavior. We are either godly or we are not. Doesn't mean we're not going to sin. It doesn't mean we're not going to fail. We're going to. But what he's saying here is that we can't live our lives, if we are Christians, like we're not. If you are in a relationship or you're in a habit or you're in some sort of dynamic that is dishonoring to God, listen to your pastor speak to you for a second. The Spirit is calling you out. He says later in verse 9, it's the translation of the word sin, but it's in the infinitive sense, which is indicative that the sinning is an ongoing action. You can't do that, Christian. You can't do that. That's contrary to your nature. When you're living in sin like that, you're living a life that is contrary to your nature. Be intentional. Take the heat. Reject the options and celebrate the great things in your life. We're freed from sin, not to sin. We are liberated from Egypt, as it were, not to look back on it, but to move forward into the promises that God has called us to inherit. Amen? Let's walk like it. Let's live like it. We are delivered, but not so that we can use our delivery as a means of ungodliness. Every day, every decision... Every thought must be taken captive and made to submit to Christ. You want to be successful as a godly man or a godly woman? Start living like it.